welcome to episode two of the history of the women of England. If you followed me through from episode one, welcome back. Just to recap, what I'm aiming to do is to go from the early modern period right through to somewhere in the early 20th century, maybe circle back at the end of that and start at the beginning, telling the story of the lives of the women of England through individual biographies. Although just to complicate things, the next episode is actually going to be two women's stories told together. We should have mentioned in the introductory episode that I'm putting on each podcast page a list of the books that I refer to or that I think would make really useful extra reading. And also for my Woman of the Week, I'm going to be including some links so you can find out more about them because I've got some really great ones. And you'll also find a list of some of the main characters who I've mentioned in the story with links to a bit more about their lives. So without further ado, beginning my first life, Lady Alice Moore. Now it might seem a little bit strange perhaps that I've chosen for my first character a woman who's best known as the wife of Sir Thomas, but she is a lovely bridge between the medieval period through to early modern times when things really do change for women, particularly in terms of access to learning. And I also regard this episode as something of a, a tribute episode to my mum, Joy Bennett. In 1970s Australia, she and her friends suffered very much from being described as just housewives. And here I look at how the job of housewife was very much a full-time, serious, skilled occupation, one that's entirely comparable to being the CEO of a small and medium-sized enterprise today. With Lady Alice, we're definitely talking about the medium-sized enterprise end. And she's also quite a character and tells us quite a bit about the emotional structure of society then, particularly how they did really like a joke even if lots of their jokes, perhaps in our terms, were a bit on the coarse side. So, Lady Alice Moore. For the people of England, it seemed that the coronation of Henry VIII in 1509 was something more than a mere dynastic handover. The economic dynamism of medieval London seemed to have stalled, despite 24 years of the peaceful rule of Henry's father, the seventh, who'd seized the throne from Richard III ending the War of the Roses. Edmund Dudley, who was shortly to lose his head for having served Henry's father too faithfully, mused from the tower that the kingdom had for a long time been in some decay, and Henry was the prince that shall revive it. Yet the population was growing fast, as was trade, and England, in diplomacy and weight of arms, was starting to move closer to the centre of the European stage. There was also growing intellectual sophistication, which was exercised to the full in the family of Sir Thomas More, in which the children, female and male, were offered in a home school the full course of Renaissance scholarship that was only now arriving in England. The example of the More family was seen, then and now, as an important force in the rise throughout the 16th century of the learned woman. That's not to say that 15th century London, for example, wasn't a very vibrant, active place, one where women lived amazing lives. There was Alice Clathers, the silk woman who for 33 years ran a prosperous business that trained many female apprentices in one of the key luxury trades of the city. Then there was 
the woman known as quote unquote the female Dick Whittington, Dame Thomasine Percivale, who married and buried three rich merchant husbands and later developed a great tradition of philanthropy that I'll be picking up in a later episode. But the access for women to scholarship, as well as the range of that scholarship and the celebration of it, was something new. Sir Thomas's daughters were celebrated not just across England, but across Europe, including by the great Dutch scholar Erasmus for their humanist learning. Even the educational program followed by King Henry's daughters was influenced by their example. There had been women celebrated for their learning before, the barking nuns who I mentioned, through to Henry's grandmother, the extremely formidable Lady Margaret Beaufort. But in this century, the 16th, female learning was to reach a much wider range of women and a higher standard. It was a tradition that would continue, often in the same families, well into the 17th century. Mary Brown, the daughter of Charles I's residence in Paris, was already well-educated in English, French and Latin at the age of 13 when she married the writer John Evelyn. Yes, I did say 13. Of the female members of the family, Moore had three daughters, one stepdaughter, these two informally adopted daughters and one son. It has been Sir Thomas's oldest child, Margaret, also known as Meg, who's received the most attention. George Ballard, who I talked about as a biographer of prominent women in the 18th century, said of Margaret, she seems to have had all things that either art or nature could give her to make her perfect. She had a ready wit, quick conception, tenacious memory, a fine imagination. Initially, I thought that this episode might be about Margaret. She's the only woman of the Moore circle of her generation whose work has survived in the form of letters and one small book, a translation from Latin of Erasmus's treatise on the Lord's Prayer. I soon encountered a problem, however. There's just too much spin. Margaret is, in every contemporary source, the perfect daughter and the perfect wife. These stories sometimes really get into the fantastical. She's supposed to have rescued Sir Thomas's head from its traitor's spike on London Bridge. Possibly just about believable. But on one account, she caught it as a royal lackey tried to throw it into the Thames. Yeah, I think we can put that one into the fable category. To find a real woman under this hagiography seemed impossible. This is not, perhaps, surprising. The life of Sir Thomas has been the subject of centuries of spin doctoring. There have been many lives of more written, several by men who knew him or his family, and most of them had one goal, his canonization, which finally came rather late in the piece in 1936. Given that, I've chosen to refer to him throughout this episode as Sir Thomas rather than Saint Thomas. I turned instead to Lady Alice, Sir Thomas's second wife and stepmother to his children, who was far less central to the project of sainthood. The spin on her Lady Alice is usually negative, slanted to show her husband in a sanctified light by playing down her importance and their sexual relationship, sometimes using her as an excuse for behaviour by Sir Thomas that the hagiographers find uncomfortable. But examination of the evidence of their life together soon cuts through that. Lady Alice had a strong practical character and a comfortable relationship with Sir Thomas, her second husband. It was there to see for anyone who looked. She was also a competent, effective, strong manager. Lady Alice made a dramatic 
entry into the family. The tale comes down to us from a letter from Father John Bouge of St Stephen's Warbrook, who had christened two of Sir Thomas's children. In a letter to a friend, he said of Sir Thomas, I buried his first wife, and within a month he came to me on a Sunday at night late, and there he brought me a dispensation to be married on next Monday without any bans saying. So less than a month after his first wife died, Sir Thomas, hurriedly and secretly, was arranging a new union. Using a marriage by licence was by no means unusual, but the haste was. With young children to care for, had Sir Thomas married three or four months later, no one would have raised an eyebrow. Less than a month was, however, even by the standards of the time, a hurried affair, particularly for a man who'd considered the idea of a celibate life during his early adulthood, when he lived in close contact with the monks of Charterhouse Monastery in Clerkenwell. Sir Thomas had other reasons to be embarrassed. Someone must surely have thrown back at him the words of one of his epigrams. The widow who marries again is a shipwrecked sailor who a second time sails on the stormy sea. It was a quip that reflected a, a deeper problem in the man. Sir Thomas had, as might be said today, issues about his sexuality. So did the whole of Christianity. But Sir Thomas was a man who felt the problem as unusually personal. Much of his later anti-Lutheran polemic is littered with fervent comparisons of heresy and lust, both equally heinous in Sir Thomas's view. A modern biographer stirred great controversy by concluding that his daily wearing of a hair shirt and use of a whip to further mortify his flesh were signs of an uncontrolled sexual tension. That is, however, to judge the actions of the past by the understandings of the present. Whatever the purpose, we get a hint of Lady Alice's no-nonsense character in her reaction. She could see no point in the hair shirt and begged his confessor to persuade him to stop wearing it. So it's impossible now to know why Sir Thomas, then aged about 32, rushed down to Father Doog's house late on that Sunday night. He certainly may have found Lady Alice attractive. A painting by Hans Holbein, done when she was in her 50s, shows her as that. And Sir Thomas also certainly knew she was a sensible, caper, mature woman. She was certainly a, a good catch in financial terms, and as a prosperous widow, she may not have been available for long. Cressica Moore, Sir Thomas's great-grandson, wrote that his attention was drawn to his wife-to-be by a friend seeking Lady Alice's hand for himself. When she married for the second time, she'd been on her own for two years, yet sermons of the time recommended a one-year widowhood, and the average was half of that. Although, so far as we can judge, she'd probably not remarried earlier because after her initial bereavement, she soon suffered a further loss when her younger daughter, Helen, died. So affection, respect, maybe lust, and the need for a household manager and surrogate mother were probably all part of the attractions for a quick return to the married state for Sir Thomas. This marriage, however, could not have been more different to his first. Then, aged about 26, he chose an uneducated country girl of 17 from a family of 18, Jane Colt, who he sought to mould to his requirements. The couple probably lived first with his father in Milk Street, off the bustling market centre of Cheapside, where poor Jane was subjected to a complete programme of education, not dissimilar to that later delivered to his children. A 17-year-old wife was, however, less tractable than a five-year-old, and you can only sympathise with a teenager who thought she was graduating to adult status, but instead found herself thrust into the schoolroom. Erasmus describes what happened. 
All of this was completely new to a girl who had been brought up at a home to do nothing but chatter and amuse herself. She soon grew weary of this life. She would weep day after day and sometimes throw herself flat on the ground, beating her head as if she wished for death. The Dutchman's account says that after a visit from her father, she was brought into line. But Sir Thomas's plans had certainly not worked out as he'd hoped. Poor Jane, anyway, had little time to absorb all of this as instruction, dying six years later, most likely in childbirth, leaving Sir Thomas with four children, the oldest aged about seven. Lady Alice Middleton, who became their stepmother and brought her daughter, another Alice, aged about ten, into the family, was no Jane Colt. She was older than Sir Thomas, about three years older seems the best guess, although estimates run up to eight. In remarrying a man younger than herself, she was following a common pattern. Far greater age gaps were regularly seen as young men used marriage to become financially established. Women probably saw a range of advantages in younger husbands, something that was the subject of considerable mockery at the time. Lady Alice had a strong temperament and her own wealth, having inherited for her use in her lifetime her first husband's entire estate. She was literate in English and competent at the arithmetic needed to run a household. Born in somewhere around 1475, she probably married John Middleton, a merchant of the staple at Calais, by 1492, certainly by 1499. The staple was incorporated by royal charter in 1319, although it probably goes back to the earlier century, and it was known chiefly for exporting raw wool to the continent. But as cloth production in England grew, the export of raw wool became less important. But in this period, it was still certainly generating significant sums, and Lady Alice's husband would have been a rich man, an important man in the city of London. He died in 1509. As his wife, Lady Alice would have played a substantial part not just in running his household, but also his business, including making financial decisions when her husband was away. Her life then must have been much like that of Dane Thomasine and the 15th century silk women, although on her second marriage it was to change greatly. She is or was, a living bridge between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Research by Ruth Norrington, who's written the only biography of Lady Alice, titled In the Shadow of a Saint, produced in a limited edition in 1983, indicates that Sir Thomas may well have known Lady Alice before he even met his first wife through family connections in Kent. Sir Thomas must certainly anyway have met Lady Middleton, as she was then, during his close association with the Mercers. He was at the centre of arrangements to receive the pensionary of Antwerp at Mercers Hall in 1502, the sort of great occasion she would certainly have attended. The man Alice was marrying was not yet a star on the European or even the English scene, although he was beginning to shine as an up-and-coming figure in London. Utopia, the work for which he's best known today, would not be published until five years after the wedding. A year before this second marriage, however, he had become the Undersheriff of London, giving him an income of £400 a year, a substantial figure for a lawyer in his early 30s. The timing destroys the claim, made by biographers keen to emphasise his sanctity, that his second wife pushed him into public life. For the first 14 years of their marriage, the couple lived in a house called the Barge, just off Cornhill, that Sir Thomas had shared with Jane. The name of the house came from the proximity of a wharf on the junction of the Warbrook Stream and the Thames, 
a reminder of how far the Great River has been narrowed in subsequent centuries. The barge was convenient for his work at Guildhall, and a bustling area scented by the stalls of spice merchants and apothecaries. But in 1523, the family moved to the Great House at Chelsea, then a country village, a reflection of Sir Thomas's rising status. He was now aged about 45, had been in the King's service for seven years and a knight for four. At the King's request, he had written, under a pseudonym, an answer to Luther's response to Henry's own Defensio Septum Sacramentorum. Apologies, I never studied Latin, as I'm sure you can tell. That was the volume that had earned the monarch the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope. Irony laid on with a trowel there. I'm not going to get into the religious controversies that were so central to the reign of Henry VIII in this episode. Lady Alice never seems to have really engaged in these issues. She was prepared to do whatever was needed to keep on the right side of the authorities. And I'll be covering it in considerable detail in the next episode, where I'll be describing the lives and deaths of two brave women who were martyred in the reign of Queen Mary. But back in these better times, Sir Thomas had also been elected Speaker of the House of Commons. The Great House was grand, but on nothing like the scale of the edifice that Cardinal Wolsey had built further upstream that today is Hampton Court Palace. It had extensive gardens running down to the Thames and its own farm, covering about 34 acres. Visitors would have included King Henry. He had a manor house just downstream, and several palaces within an hour's comfortable river travel. Plans of the Great House survive and an engraving of 1699 shows a long symmetrical two-storey structure with gable rooms. There was a chapel with an overlooking gallery on the first floor so that all of the household could share in services. Sir Thomas had eight liveried boatmen for his trips to and from Westminster, and no doubt Lady Alice and the family used them for shopping trips into the city. Battersea Bridge covers the site of the landing stage they would have used, but of the house itself, nothing remains. It was pulled down in 1737. To commune with the Moor ghosts, you have to visit Chelsea Old Church, which was the family's parish church, a 10-minute stroll across the garden. It is marked today by a truly hideous statue of Sir Thomas, who faces across a small park to Crosby Hall, a house from the City of London that Sir Thomas had owned but never lived in. It was moved here in 1910. In the old church, Sir Thomas had what's still known as the Moor Chapel, refurbished for his family's use. It survived a Second World War bomb that demolished the rest of the structure and remains in much the form that Lady Alice would have known it. The body of Jane Colt was moved from its original resting place in the city to a vault in which Sir Thomas himself hoped to lie. It stands today with an inscription that Sir Thomas had placed on it and which Lady Alice must have enjoyed reading. For Alice and myself this too my rear, by Joan I had three daughters and one son, before my prime or vigorous strength was gone. To them such love was by Alice shown, in stepmothers a virtue rarely known. The world believed the children were her own, such is Alicia, such Joanna was. It's hard to judge which was the happier choice. If piety or fate our prayers could grant, to join us three, we should no blessings want. One grave shall hold us, yet in heaven we'll live, and death grants that which life could never give. Okay, not great poetry, 
but a glowing and by no means conventional tribute. It might fairly be taken to represent Sir Thomas's feelings and to tell us quite a lot about Alice. The much restored Moore Vault is on the right of the sanctuary and the chapel beside it is a peaceful spot now used for weekday services. Women of the congregation have embroidered kneelers that commemorate each member of the Moore clan and the visitors sitting above these can glance up to the same fine capitals said to have been designed by Holbein that Alice, who loved handsome things, would have enjoyed. This love of beauty is evident in the surviving copies of the wonderful portrait of the Moore family at Chelsea, commissioned from Holbein when he was a young supplicant seeking to become established in England. Unfortunately, however, Lady Alice has been replaced by Sir Thomas's descendants in the copy in the National Portrait Gallery. But in the initial sketch by Holbein, Lady Alice is at the far right, but by no means peripheral. She holds a book in her hands, but is glancing up from under her lids to keep a check on proceedings. Sir Thomas and several others are looking her way, as if checking for her approval. Her face bears a half-smile, so they're probably doing okay. Beside her is the family's pet monkey, whose company she much loved. No doubt she appreciated a companion who could not answer her back with a smart Latin epigram. The monkey is on a chain, since it makes a guest appearance in Utopia as the destroyer of her book. It is not hard to understand why. A lapdog is curled into Sir Thomas's robe, another reflection of the love of animals that was something the couple shared. The household was also home to a fox, rabbits, a ferret, a weasel, and a collection of exotic songbirds. The women are dressed in the finest robes of the day, accessorised with heavy gold. This is a long way from the satire of Utopia, in which precious metals are used for chamber pots as a symbol of their uselessness. The fine linen fold pattern canopies over the doors and sideboard show that the house boasted the latest in design. It's not hard to suspect Lady Alice's hand there. She wears a distinctive oval medallion that looks very much like the one shown on her mother's brass in the family tomb at Leighton Church in Essex. Her mother, who was known like Lady Alice as an assertive character, had probably died during the early years of her marriage to Sir Thomas. It's possible to reconstruct the household. A census of 1528 recorded that Sir Thomas hath in his house daily 100 persons. In addition to all the extended family, his daughters brought their husbands to live at Chelsea, although the couples would also have regularly visited their country estates. This implies a staff of at least 50, a medium-sized company in today's terms. A poem in the popular The 500 Points of Good Husbandry, a Tudor bestseller by Thomas Tusser, first published in 1557, describes the work of a household manager such as Lady Alice, which covered harvesting, storing and manufacturing, nearly everything those hundred people needed. When husband is absent, let housewife be chief. The housewife so named of keeping the house must tend to her profit. New bread is a waster, but mouldy is worse. Though scouring be needful, yet scouring too much is pride without profit and robbeth thine hutch. Keep kettles from knocks, set tubs out of sun, for mending is costly and cracks is soon done. Give the servants no dainties, but give him enough. Poor servants half starve, work faintly, and fool and lubbers do loiter, their bellies too full. Say feather of all things, the softer to lie, provide for thy tallow, ere frost cometh in, and make thine own candle, ere winter begin. An indication of the tone of the household may be found in a curious verse story written by Walter Smythe 
who was for nine years Sir Thomas's personal servant, titled The Twelve Merry Jests of One Called Edith the Lying Widow, which still liveth. It identifies by name many individuals living in or known to have visited the great house. Since these people were socially far above Smythe, it can only have been written with the family's approval. The story is of a visiting widow who claims to be rich, which attracts the interests of bachelor servants. There's much merrymaking and horseplay until her fraud is discovered, and in revenge the servants doctor her beer with a purgative. The details may have been fictional, but the picture of a merry, boisterous household rings true. The love of a good jest was something else that Lady Alice shared with her husband, a man dedicated to jokes with an almost frantic passion, as he displayed even on the scaffold. When he mounted the scaffold, he reportedly said to the lieutenant, Pray, sir, see me safe up, and as to my coming down, let me shift for myself. He wrote an English verse romp not unlike Smythe's, titled A Merry Jest, How a Sergeant Would Learn to Play the Friar. Rollicking hardly covers its character. The humour is pure slapstick. One biographer wrote that it was Sir Thomas's fate to have his jokes taken seriously, and that certainly happened often with comments about Lady Alice. When asked why he'd married two short women... Jane and Lady Alice were both under five foot. He replied, Won't you not that women are necessary evils? Then do I follow the Philistine's rule, who wills of us two evils to take the lesser. So do I of my wives. Like, quote, neither a pearl nor a girl, unquote. An epithet that even Erasmus admitted was a family joke about Lady Alice. It came to be believed as a serious complaint. One of the reasons why I really liked the 2018 movie The Favourite centred on the life of Queen Anne and two women with whom she might have had lesbian relations was the fact that it didn't look like a prim and proper Victorian times. This was brambunctious, it was highly sexualised, it was very grubby in both senses of the term. And I felt like it captured the past, which really was another country, much better than so much historical work, which has seemed so heavily influenced by a sense of Victorian prim and properness being what the past was always like. I'm also a fan of the Shardlake novels by C.J. Sampson, which have as their main character... They're very classic uh, detective genre novels in some ways, but the period of Henry VIII is very well captured, it's very well researched. But also, what you get the sense of is that the culture of this time, uh, particularly among elite men, is perhaps not that dissimilar to what we think of the worst of gang culture in the modern day. If you were dissed, pulling your sword out was something that might well be expected to do. People sometimes didn't pull the sword out, but went to the courts, went to the law, set up enormous battles almost at the drop of a hat. It was a very, very conflicted time in which status was really displayed by your ability uh, and your preparedness to fight your corner. And, you know, a pretty unpleasant time. So I think Samson is really clever in making his main character what is described uh, in the language of the time as a hunchback, someone who can't participate in that who suffers considerable what we call discrimination, and so is a much more sensitive, considered, caring character than you would normally expect a Tudor lawyer to be. But back to the household in which Lady Alice was very firmly in charge. 
The day began with morning prayers. Then over breakfast, one of the children would read a Bible passage. The children would spend the bulk of their day in schooling, the curriculum covering Latin and Greek, rhetoric, poetry, philosophy, astronomy, and some logic, with formal disputing on the university model. The daughters would later dispute, debate, for the entertainment of Henry VIII. Eleven of Sir Thomas's grandchildren joined the school that their mothers had attended. Tutors came and went, coordinated by Lady Alice, since by the time the family moved to Chelsea, Sir Thomas was usually home, only for a couple of days a month. Even the usually hostile Erasmus was forced to admit, quote, His wife, whose strength lies in mother wit and experience rather than book learning, controls the whole institution with remarkable skill, acting as a kind of overseer who gives each one his task and sees that she performs it, end quote. Dice and card games were banned. Food was supposed to be plain but good, although a reference by Sir Thomas to feeding his children with fruit and cakes suggests a fine larder and kitchen. Music was valued to please her husband, and I think it's probably fair to say herself. Lady Alice took lessons on various instruments and was able to play, Erasmus admits, the scython and the lute, the monochord and the recorder. He confesses it was a striking achievement. Lady Alice declined, however, to venture further into the curriculum. Moore wrote of trying to teach his wife about the earth being at the centre of all things, and therefore the centre being the lowest spot in all creation. If a millstone were dropped into a hole bored right through the centre of it, the millstone would stop at the middle. This was something Lady Alice's practical mind was not prepared to accept. She offered him an experiment. My maid hath yonder a spinning wheel. Girl, take out your spindle and bring me hither the whirl. Lo, sir, you make imaginations I cannot tell you what. But here is a whirl which is as round as the world is, and we shall not need to imagine a hole bored in through it, as it maketh a hole bored through indeed. Imagine me now that this whirl were ten miles thick on every side, and this hole through it still, and so great that a millstone might go through it. I trow you by God, if one threw in a stone no bigger than an egg, I ween if ye stood on the nether end of it, five miles beneath the midst, it would give you a pat upon the pate that would make you claw your head, and yet should ye feel none itch at all. Amidst much laughter, the debate ended, with Lady Alice winning the day. This must have been a noisy, busy environment. It's not surprising that Sir Thomas built what's known as the New Building, which contained a chapel, library and long gallery. He would rise around 2am and pad across the garden, an early man in his shed, returning at 7am. Some have used this to suggest that he and Lady Alice were not sleeping together, that she was little more than a housekeeper. Maybe they did have separate bedrooms. She could hardly have welcomed being woken in the middle of every night that he was home. It would not have been uncommon for a middle-aged couple then, as it is not now. No more can be read into it. Lady Alice's life would not, however, have been all work. By one of those unfortunately uncommon accidents of preservation, we know that with Margaret, she attended the supper of election for the livery given by the grocer's company on July 16, 1519, when the family still lived at the barge. No doubt at many of such similar state great state occasions in which Sir Thomas had a public role, she was a proud spectator as he rose to the post 
of Lord Chancellor following the fall of Cardinal Wolsey. Sir Thomas might not, however, have discussed politics with her. There is a distinct impression that he tried to keep it out of the house. The household was meant for higher things, philosophical debate and religious study, and Lady Alice's personal view of politics and the religious questions that were intimately entwined in it seems to have been entirely practical. During Sir Thomas's final confrontation with the king, she urged her husband to give in, with the prospect of perhaps twenty more good years of life before him, and she took without demur the oath recognising Anne Boleyn as queen that Sir Thomas fatally refused. The direct sources for the nature of this marriage are scant, given the degree of detail recorded about other aspects of Sir Thomas's life. Only one letter from Sir Thomas to Lady Alice survives. I have in front of me a copy of it now, in a curious Victorian volume titled An English Garner in Gatherings from Our History and Literature, only to be obtained by application to E. Arbour at Southgate, London. Edward Arbour started life as a clerk and worked his way up to be Professor of English at Mason College, which later became Birmingham University. His English Garner is described as collecting old tracts and poems, uh, some in this first volume that contains Sir Thomas's letter include one William Shakespeare, Sir Walter Raleigh, and from the Privy Council, a brief note on the benefits of fish days. It's a reminder that access to information was once a very difficult matter. Arbour regarded his project as a democratising one, making available documents that previously had only been found in aristocratic libraries. Sir Thomas's letter, written on the 3rd of September 1529, after the family had moved to Chelsea, it refers to measures to be taken after the accidental burning of grain stores. It's noteworthy, perhaps, that Sir Thomas had not learned about the fire from Lady Alice. He probably already had measures to deal with it well in hand, but from one of his son-in-laws. It's clear in the letter that Lady Alice is the full mistress of the household. Sir Thomas bids her to, quote, take all the household with you to church and there thank God for that he hath left us, end quote. She's also to look at the provisioning of seed for the following year, if you think it good that we keep the ground still in our hands. He also asks her to consider the employment of farmhands, but to ensure that if they're not needed, that other employment is found for them. Showing the importance of her role beyond the household, and a very classically female role at that, Sir Thomas also asked her to check on what then poorer neighbours had lost and to replace it. The fact that many more letters to his daughter Margaret survived should not necessarily be taken to mean that she was the more regular correspondent. Many of the letters that Sir Thomas wrote to his eldest daughter, setting out his views on education, his pleasure at her academic progress, his arguments against the king, were written with at least one eye towards publication and were preserved for this purpose. Those to Lady Alice may have been more prosaic. In addition, as Lady Alice was seeking to hold together the family fortunes after her husband's execution, she may have had many good reasons to destroy letters. We have first-hand very few of Lady Alice's words, but there are some wonderful hearsay reports. Sir Thomas wrote to Erasmus, Why my wife bids me to send you a thousand greetings, and I am to thank you for your highly polished message, in which you wish her a long life. She's all the more eager for this, she says, because it means she can plague me all the longer. Lady Alice is getting in her own quiet sarcasm against the scholar, 
who was no favourite of hers, while sharing a joke with her husband. Erasmus had stayed at the barge through the death of one wife and the arrival of the next. He was not a pleasant house guest, extremely fussy about his food and wine, frequently ill, and on his own admission, ill-tempered. He never learnt English, always conversing with Sir Thomas in Latin, which Lady Alice did not understand. The Dutchman wrote to a friend towards the end of his stay, I am bored with England, and Moore's wife is bored with me. She also apparently clashed with Andro Ammonio, Henry VIII's Latin secretary, who had also lodged at the barge. He wrote a letter that referred to, quote, the book beak of the harpy, which is taken to be a reference to Lady Alice. His first wife, Jane, probably had no say in Sir Thomas's long-term bachelor house guests. A stronger character was not going to accept their unsociable presence without making her views very clear. For other details of Lady Alice, we're largely reliant on the contemporary and near-contemporary biographers. These are the source of many calumnies. The most influential, William Roper, Margaret's husband, made his hostility to his mother-in-law clear after Sir Thomas's execution. He tried to seize the lease on lands at Battersea that Lady Alice had retained. A writ served by another son-in-law at least forced him to pay a fair price. It was a litigious age, and Roper was a man who loved a lively fight through the courts, as so many of the Tudors did. But this was surely not a sign of good familial relations. In addition to the cases of active spite, in the rush to praise Margaret, the daughter, Lady Alice is often pushed into the shadows. The years at Chelsea were surely for Lady Alice the best of her life, although the final three were troubled by concern about the consequences of Sir Thomas resigning from royal service, something that usually had a heavy cost. After Sir Thomas had paid that price, Lady Alice was left to manage alone. The house at Chelsea, may be due to the mercy of the king, perhaps just administrative incompetence, remained under her control for two years. She sought to cash in on some of the family property that escaped attainder with Sir Thomas's conviction, selling Sutton Court at Chiswick to a property speculator. He refused to pay. She took him to court and eventually got at least half the cash. In 1537, the crown granted her an annuity of £20. She was keeping out of trouble, but the rest of the family, it seemed, could not. In 1540, her son-in-law and legal helper Giles Heron was hung, drawn and quartered at Tyburn on a treason charge. Soon after, many members of the family, including Sir Thomas's only son John, the least intellectual member of the family, and said to be Lady Alice's favourite, and William Roper, were arrested over an alleged Catholic plot. One grandson, John Elrington was condemned. The rest were gradually released from the Tower after signing the Oath of Supremacy, recognising the King as the head of the Church. It's easy to imagine Lady Alice's matriarch visiting the stricken wives to offer practical advice and help. In 1544, she was granted the lease of a house in Chelsea. It was probably the rectory which Sir Thomas had owned. Soon after, the redoubtable double widow, aged about 70, appears to have provided the family with another shock. Norrington, the biographer, found a letter indicating that she intended to marry a Roland Hunt, probably a Mercer's Company man, but the ceremony, for reasons undone, did not go ahead, and Lady Alice finally died in 1551, aged in her late 70s. She was probably still living at Chelsea, and may well have been buried in the vault that Sir Thomas had prepared all those years before. Records decades later still refer to the chapel as Lady Moore's, 
a reflection, it seems highly likely, of the affection with which she was held in the village, and probably also a record of her last resting place. So, what did Lady Alice achieve? A prosperous, comfortable life. Its upsets, no fault of hers, but rather the product of her husband's stiff neck. She left her practical contributions to the Moore School, which was an important model for women's education in humanist scholarship, and a genetic legacy through her solitary daughter. The most prominent later relative of Sir Thomas, and that only through his sister, was the poet John Donne. Lady Alice's tenuous genetic gamble placed her, however, as the ancestor of the great traveller Lady Hester Stanhope. She was also an ancestor of the current British royal family. The late Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, was apparently delighted to discover Lady Alice in her family tree. So we come now to the final two elements of this podcast. First, the book of the week. And this time, it's a very new, just released book, Stranger in Shogun City by Amy Stanley. This book has perhaps already got quite a lot of attention, uh, reviews in both the FT and The Economist, but I really think it's worth highlighting as something that anyone interested in women's history really shouldn't miss. I confess I don't know terribly much about Edo, Japan, but we get very deep into the heart of its capital city and indeed its rural areas through following to Sunino, a woman who, when she gets to the capital, has already been divorced three times and subsequently will marry, divorce and remarry the same man again. It's a curiously modern feeling life, a reminder that the past is often not what we expect of it. And there's an amazing opportunity through the wonderful resources, all of Tuzanino's letters to her family that were preserved in the Buddhist temple where her brother was in charge, to get inside what was really happening in her head. Stanley also does an amazing job of painting the picture of a city thronged with immigrants, struggling to survive, often desperately poor, horribly overcrowded. And one of the things I love about this story is that Tusanino is a representative of so many women whose lives we can't recover. Those who rebelled, who ran away, who sought something different and didn't follow the regular path. And for her, it wasn't an absolute disaster. It didn't work out as she might have planned, but she made her own way in life, made her own decisions. And getting the record of a woman doing that is a very precious thing and reminder that it's far more common in history than we think. We come now to the final element of the podcast, the woman of the week. Just a reminder that I'm going to pick out women not from English history, but just some of the fascinating characters I've encountered over the years. If Tuzanino, in the terms of her society, was intrepid, well, Jeanne Barret, that's spelt J-E-A-N-N-E-B-A-R-E-T, takes that to a whole new level. She is 
the first woman to have completed a voyage of circumnavigation of the world. Certainly not what you would have predicted when she was born in the tiny Burgundy village of La Camel in 1740 to a desperately poor peasant family. Women were not allowed on French navy ships then, so when in 1766 she joined a colonial expedition, she was disguised as a man, enlisted as an assistant to the expedition's naturalist, Philibert Commesson. The story is a bit more complicated than that. She'd been his housekeeper, and then she had a son with him who'd been given up to the foundling hospital and soon died. But they worked together. They were probably still partners together. When they got to Montevideo, Commesson was ill, but together they still collected specimens of a flowering vine which was called Bougainvillea, after the, the surname of the commander of the expedition. You've probably seen one or two of them over the years. When they got to Patagonia, in rough terrain, they made a very large collection of plants, stones and shells, Beret doing most of the physical labour. But she also helped organise and catalogue the specimens. She'd been illiterate as a young woman, but probably from Commerson, she'd learnt not just to read and write, but had acquired a great deal of scientific knowledge and the ability to use it with confidence. It's unclear when she was exposed as female. Some of the stories say that when she went ashore in Tahiti, the locals immediately recognised that she was a woman. But on their arrival in Mauritius, the couple remained there, probably removing a headache for uh, Bougainville as commander of the expedition. They were there for a couple of years in Mauritius, until Commerson died, but Barret established her own life there, owning property and running a tavern, building up a significant fund. But meeting a French soldier, who was probably on his way home, she married, and they returned to France, probably in 1775, completing her circumnavigation and collecting the money that had been left to her in Commissar's will. Ten years later, the French government had changed its tune she received a pension of £200 a year, and she was described by the government as an extraordinary woman. And that she very definitely was. My impression is that Joan has had more attention in the English-speaking world than the French-speaking world. But I was really pleased to go into a French bookshop recently and discover two publications. One in 2019, a popular biography and one just this year, a novel, a novelised life of this wonderful woman. So she's obviously also now getting attention in France and the French-speaking world. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got thoughts about what I should do, how I should do it, I'm always happy to get messages through your podcast app. I'm aiming to put the next episode up in a week's time. That's Mary's Martyrs. Uh, and I hope you'll be joining me then. Have a great week.